Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, thanks for all for being here, first of all. I'm Jim Halterman, the West Coast Bureau Chief for TV Guide Magazine. Um, you know, when you talk about the career of today's guests, it's filled with projects like on film, The Road, 12 Years a Slave, I Think I Love My Wife. On TV, so many good shows. Um, the Wire, Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire, The Night Of, Community. And of course, uh, When We Rise was on earlier this year, and he's on Happen Leonard on Sundance. So many things to talk about. Let's bring out Michael K. Williams. That was a very warm welcome for you, sir. Yeah, it's good to see some familiar faces. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm humbled. That's awesome. Well, I, I love doing these SAG panels because we don't just talk about the projects, but how you approach them. And I think that's why everybody's here. And you've done such a great body of work. So we're going to kind of start at the beginning. <laughs> well, born in Brooklyn, correct? Yes, sir. Um, what, you know, when did performing come into your life? When was it that, you know, I just feel like the, the bug hits somewhere, either younger or older. When did, when did you kind of first start thinking about it? I knew something was up when I found <laughs> myself in the bathroom using my mother's uh, feminine wash, the old school one, the rubber bag. The, and I would... <laughs> Put on her wig, right? And I would sing Michael Jackson songs. I knew that something was wrong. I knew that. I, <laughs> it's not normal. <laughs> um, I, I say that to say, um, you know, on a serious note, I, my first, my first, um, I, I, you know, my first love was fantasy. You know, I was addicted to fantasy. You know, I, had a, I had a very low self-esteem. Uh, my my my, my self-love reservoir was very low, and so. Um, I just used to just, it was always to be something else, something other. So, uh, you know, it came from, um, uh, you know, my love of craft came from something other. You know, it's, it's only been blessed now as an adult to, to finally to be able to use, the, as they turn your pain into profit, to use, use it for good. But, the, you know, that's, I would say that was, that's when I first you know, started to recognize it the first time I realized I can make money at it. <laughs> you know, was um, it was uh after a few music videos. You know, um, anybody know? Y'all know I got you know the the when I got this cut in my face, I went from just being the background dancer to now you know um photographers and you know found me interesting and um, um you know they wanted me to play these these vignettes and various music videos and. It was on the set of the George Michael music video. I was working with uh, a director by the name of Marcus Nispel, you know, and uh, wow, yeah, <laughs> Marcus Nispel, that's right. He uh, started a lot of careers um, that you see now. 
He's a very quiet, um, very talented uh, uh, director from the music video world in New York City, and he was one of the biggest production companies in New York City, and gave a lot of you know talent that you see now coming out of New York, like people like myself, gave a lot of us opportunity. So um, it was on the set of the, uh, the George Michael video. He's German, right? He's Nispel, right? So he was screaming in his um, in his thick German accent. Emote, Michael, give me pain, emote! And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, he's, you know, I put one in one of the guests, like, that's why he's acting without words, and that was the first time I went and I used, it, like, the, I deliberately used the pain I felt from the scars on my face, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, because that's what I, you know, that's just what I do, I, I, I access something, in my past, whether whatever connection I have to it, then that that brings the once I find the truth, that brings then I've used those dark, twisted <laughs> memories to uh, bring life. So um, that was one of the first times I did that. Nice. Well, we got to fill in some details though. What was the Michael Jackson song you sang in the mirror as a kid? I need I need to know this. Oh man, uh, what, what, which um, one? Um, 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 let me show you, let me show you the way to go. That. You know, um, <laughs> that was one of them. That was one of them. I mean, I go on and on, on, on dancing, dancing, dancing. <laughs> We're talking like the, you know, early seventies. His his era where he was still with his brothers. Yeah. You know, so um, I was very impressionable. Also, Michael Jackson had a huge impression on me. Then, then came John Travolta, and I was like, oh damn, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and the George Michael video. What's George Michael video? George Michael video was, he actually wasn't in it. Um, it was, he took a, a song that was originally done by Seal called Killer, and, and he fused it with the, uh, uh, Papa was a Rolling Stone, um, what was that, the, uh, the, uh, the, the um, oh, shit, the, the Temptations, yeah, and he fused those two That's songs right. together, and he used all these, like, interesting faces from, you know, we just from street kids in New York, man, and, and um, they casted us in that video, and that was the, uh, that was the light bulb for me. And I, and I saw, I watched Madonna's secret video. Yes, sir. You could see Abtastic right here. <laughs> Showing off his abs. Blink eye, you miss me. No, it's, it's there, it's there. The finger to, you know, um, that, that video um, had a, was also too, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in, well, basically the sound cliche, following my dreams. Mm -hmm. So uh, I remember that when that video came, I was asked to go to the audition and I went and it was a room full of like, we call them Bowery boys in New York. You know, like nice, you know, Spanish boys from Low East Side, buff, like nice, you know, the Fabio hair and, you know, wife beat on. And I'm, you know, I'm bald headed, buck tooth, skinny, you know, you know, and uh, I just didn't think that I would get called. And so I left after having signed my name. And then the casting director, she, uh, she called me back and said, you know, whatever. So I go back on the callbacks and, um, you know, I was just asked to be myself. You know, just, you know, she asked me a few questions and, um, you know, I, I booked it. Um, unfortunately, the video filmed on the same day as uh, I was slated to go on a, a two to three week tour with Crystal Waters, 100% um, Pure Love video, which is also directed by Marcus Nispel. Um, uh, he, uh, um, she had me on this tour and said either, you know, to, but I asked her if I can stay back one day and film this this video with Madonna and then travel on and meet them out there. And that wasn't, um, that was not gonna work for the production. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I said, have a nice flight. Okay. Uh, I stayed home. 
and it was um I felt something I just felt like I just needed to do that video. That video felt important to to wherever I I thought I may have been going. I had no clue if you'd have told me this would be the 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 outcome of what was what was being born then. But it was from that music video, the secret music video, Madonna, Bedtime Story, I think it was called. It was uh, how I got seen by um, uh, Matt Mahern. Matt Mahern was a photographer. He had done a, a multiple of uh, uh, Time magazine covers. He had gotten a lot of flack for doing the O.J. Simpson cover when, he, when the pigmentation, that, you know, that whole thing. And he uh, used this film mugshot as his redemption song, in my opinion, to say, look, I'm, I'm not racist. I just am drawn to dark, neutered <laughs> images. This is, this is just my, my, my way I express my art. And this movie was an homage to that, and I got lucky to be cast opposite of uh, Robert Nepper. And um, that was my first uh, starring role. And uh, had I not been in that music video, they would not have seen me, Matt Mahern would not have seen me and got the casting director said, who are these interesting faces on the streets of New York that have been cast in these videos? So uh, that was how things started to get born for me. We're, we're, when you're on the sets of those videos and doing music and choreography, that sort of thing, in the back of your head, were you thinking, I want to act, I want to do that instead of this? Or how did that kind of it really, It literally did not happen until the George Michael video. That's when, you know, a couple of Taylor Dane videos. I remember Taylor Dane, I'm dating myself. She was a big Taylor pop star Dane. back in the day. I'm like, and Taylor Dane, tell me everything. Yeah, man. <laughs> did a couple of Taylor Dane videos, and it was one video where I, um, I had this lace and, you know, Randy St. Nichols, another major director from the music video world, who I respect a lot. And uh, she, uh, she said to run the white cloth across my face and it was a sad song. And all of a sudden I got caught up in the emotion. I was like, damn, I feel like crying right now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Damn, I'm just, I just felt this, this thing. I told her, I went back and said, yo, I, you know, I felt like crying. I had to hold back the tears. She's like, no, you should have cried. It would have been, been beautiful. <laughs> you know, um, um, that, that, that was, um, I forgot what the hell we was talking about. Oh, you just, said just, just moving into get, acting. I get, uh, uh, acting, right? You know, so it was, um, you know, it was the George Michael that was the that was the thing. But, oh, you asked me what would I be doing on those music videos? Yeah, were you thinking about thinking? wanting to act? No, I was not. Okay, but something instinctively told me to. Um, it's, it's, you know, as I call it, the spook by the door. I was not the the kid. Like you know, a lot of the. I come from when they would yell at you on the big bull horns and the, the music, you know, like the the first ADs, number music. I was the extra in the music video back in the like the early '90s. It was like you know, Cole Pete's in the church basement, man, and so on. <laughs> you know, I was either playing spades. It was kind of like the yard in prison. You played spades, or you working out, or you talking about girls. That was what you did in the basement, waiting until they would call you to be the extra in the music video, right? So I just I went upstairs and I was just something just said. It was, there's a whole, all this, this, this whole world upstairs. And I just, I was fascinated by that. And so I would just, I would just hang out like a little fly on the wall and just watch, watch people work. It was there that I learned, um, you know, what cut meant, what action meant, what back to one meant, what check the gate meant. It, all of that dialogue, the basics of how to, you know, you know, how to you know, pace yourself on set, stay away from the craft service table that will make you fat and it will kill your energy, your battery. You know, I learned that all on the music video set. And um, 
you know, by the time I got to, to the world, when the, again, when the light bulb went off, I, I call it on that, George Michael said, you know, I had, I had been, been, you know, I've been paying attention a little bit. Okay. How did Bullet come along? Oh, wow. Um, the great Tupac Shakur, um, again, the music video world, it was a time when the right video would make you a star. So, you know, you would just go in and you go to an audition, you know, 440 Lafayette was one of the big places we had whole auditions and they would put you on a wall, white wall, and just Polaroid you, you know, and the dark skinned people in the room, you know that that was not my, my best moment, right? The Polaroid <laughs> and dark skin, this is not work, right? So. Um, I don't know, man. This is, you know, you, you go around town, you audition for these, you know, different whatever, whatever they need you for, whatever. We had these things called the in, uh, these industrial projects, like commercials for, you know, whatever. Just it was just it was a vibrant time to be on the streets in New York, looking for work as an as a young artist. And um, Tupac was in New York um, doing a movie called Bullet with uh, Mickey Rourke and. Um, and Donnie Wahlberg, I think Julian Temple, Julian Temple directed it. And he must have went by the office. They were still casting the role of his little brother. And he, uh, he saw my picture, the Polaroid. It was, it was I, I had, a, had a purple sweatshirt on with the word gravy on it. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot make this up. That's the picture he saw. And um, he was able to see that um, I had this, you know, scar on my face, and he, he, he asked Julian Temple to have the office look for me, because in his words, he said I, I looked thugged out enough to play his little brother, and he, um, he went back and once they knew that I was casted, he went back and uh, he had the write, write it in that um, he remember he had the Rick, the Rick, the um, the the, uh, the the eye patch, like what's my dude, uh, um. um Slick Rick, he had the Slick Rick patch on, you know what I'm saying? And um, he, had, he asked the, the writers to write that in so that we can play brothers. And you know, one got the scar, the other one got, got, got the eye taken out, we both bald-headed, they look crazy, you know what I mean? <laughs> and that was pretty much, you know, in his words. Okay, well then, when you, when you started getting more work, I mean, when something like The Sopranos comes along, I mean, how, one, how did that come along? And then what were you thinking? I mean, that's, a, that's a, like a huge show. You know, uh, Sopranos was definitely a, 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 a defining moment of booking that show. You know, um, there were a lot of shows that kept New York City actors working. Again, you know, I, I believed in always, you know, you know, I made a lot of dumb mistakes in life, but I, I had a knack for listening when I wanted to grab information. Or if I knew how to, my mother always say, stick with the winners, right? So, you know, came a point in time in my career, I stopped hanging around so many dancers. I started hanging on people who were, aspiring to become actors and they would say these strange things about like pilot season and <laughs> sag. What the fuck is that? <laughs> I'm not joking, this <laughs> serious. The first things I remember hearing were people going, well, you on pilot season? I'm like, what's that, when you go, you sick? What you, was that like a, a ranch or something? And then sag, you got your car, you got the sag car. I'm like, what is it? I really was so ignorant. And so um, that was the first, one of the two of the first things. And, you know, um, um, by the time, like, you know, you had, you had Law and Order, you had New York Undercover, you had NYPD Blue. These are the shows that kept New York City actors, young actors working. And, but then you had, you know, if you, if you drank, you got good liquor, then you have top shelf, right? Sopranos was top shelf. You know what I'm saying? You got a guest star role in that motherfucker. It was like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
I, um, every time I would, you know, pilot season frightened me. The, the, the thought of coming to New York, to, to leaving everything in New York that I knew and loved, just going to LA with no one, just, you know, just putting it out there, I frightened me. I didn't have the balls for that. So, but you know, it was the while I would try to like, you know, well, I'm just go out there and just, I'm just gonna see, right? And I would try to book the ticket and I would just book a job in New York. So, you know, I was like, damn, okay, so. But then the three jobs that really, that came kind of consecutively, it was a, it was, I had a guest starring role on Law and Order where we portrayed the Ray Carruth story, the football player who, um, that, that, that dark story. We portrayed that, it was my first guest starring role on Law and Order, right? Then I did, um, then I booked a guest starring role in Sopranos, right? And um, Black Man Sopranos didn't get killed off, right? You know, um, the Jackie Jr. when he tried to, you know, do that robbery that went awry. And then I got the, the cream of the crop, which was, um, I booked Bringing Out the Dead with uh, opposite Nicolas Cage with Mr. Scorsese, right? Well, Marty, as we call it, I get to call it. <laughs> <laughs> Marty, you know what I mean? So, um, um, yeah, I, I pretty much thought a star was born. I, I, um, I packed my bags and said, LA is gonna be calling for me any minute, any minute. And um, two years straight, the phones went dead. I, I, you, I couldn't get anything. It got real scary. And um, I remember getting really bitter, and angry, and just like, I, you know, didn't have the, you know, I just didn't have the tools of how to, you know, this is the business, you have you know, highs and lows, peaks and valleys. I didn't have that, that, um, that science yet. And so I went into a, into a just really dark place, right? And got a little negative. And um, I left the business, right? So I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> and um, I was uh, <laughs> just ignorant, you know, I was ignorant. And, uh, but you know, sometimes I, I knew enough to know that I needed to sit down. I was just, I was just, I felt like I was chasing my tail. I just, just, just didn't know what I was doing anymore. And so um, I went to work with my mom's in the, in the daycare center. And uh, I worked there for all of 2000 and all of 2001. And it was in October of 2001, I asked her to lend me some money because um, I was sitting in my house, my apartment in the projects in Brooklyn and, um, you know, it was, doing some, un, you know, some <laughs> undesirable things, right? But um, I just, uh, you know, I, I, we would, I would mute the television, but have it on and then play the music. And I um, remember we were sitting there and lo and behold, the episode of Sopranos comes on. And I'm like, Something's wrong with this picture. <laughs> I'm like, something's wrong with this picture. Mike, what are you doing? And uh, I asked my mom to lend me some money. And I put together my a new reel, new package, and I sent them out for Christmas presents. You know, Tiffany's pins in them, you know, just, just vulgar, just over the top, gaudy, you know, unnecessary, you know, situation. I just sent them out for Christmas presents. You know, I'm going to announce that I'm coming back into the business, you know. And that, and that was... That <laughs> Dead serious. <laughs> and, that, and that was and that was when you did have to send things out. It wasn't sending emails online. Or no, 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 no. The money I borrowed, basically before Apple, I went. My friend Al Thompson, he's a um, um, brother I love in New York City, actor, um, another you know, New York City brother who's been doing it for a long time. He showed me how to. You go to the com computer shows. We build our own computers and. He showed me how to make my own resume and you know, and scan the picture and buy the Kodak paper. Like these, these we just you know he's from Harlem in the projects. I'm from Brooklyn in the projects. That's how we 
we shared information. We didn't keep things from each other, and that's how we grow. That's how I found my. It wasn't. I didn't just. I didn't get here by myself. I asked a lot of questions. I was a work. I'm still a work in progress, and you know, people helped me. You know, you just, I didn't do this by myself. So you know, um, back to the round of disaster. I know I got long winded, but um, yeah. So I um, I uh, I I put all the stuff together. I sent them out for Christmas, and I thought maybe okay, people would open the presents and um. I would, you know, by January, the phone be off the hook ringing. <laughs> and, um, you know, March came around. <laughs> and, um, you know, my mom's was like, Negro, where is my money? <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, you know, 9-11 had happened. And um, it was just, it was just so much sadness and darkness. And I, I you know, I'm sensitive, I absorbed all of that. And it just, again, had a very uh, a negative effect on me. And a um, few weeks, I was, I, you know, months by March, I was on, on antidepressants, you know, I was trying to get it together. And that's when I got the call for Omar Devon Little. Ah. And, and did that come from your sending out your resume, your reel? How did that come about? How'd you get that call? Alexa Fogel, God bless her, man. She, she um, remembered me. You know, she has a mind like, I mean, you know, she just remembered me from two years ago when I took myself off the scene. And she was like, wait a minute, you know, wait a minute. And she scoured the streets of New York till she turned over the rock that I was hiding under. <laughs> and um, she had me come in. Did you have to go through a lot of auditions, and how did that play out? One. Just one. One audition, one character. Um, she had me read that scene. It's scene, uh, season one where Omar knows he's being followed by Bunk and, and Kima, and he deliberately drives into the graveyard and says, like, so, because he knows there can't be no, uh, no, nothing, you know, you can't record him in the graveyard. So, And they had that talk about, you know, the dead body and bubbles, and that's, that's the first time that Omar... Bubbles is the characters introduces through this this dialogue between Omar and uh, McNulty in the graveyard. That was my audition scene. I read that three times on tape in her office in New York, and um, I know I was being told to report to Baltimore. Nice. Baltimore. That's <laughs> amazing. In, the, in those early days, what was your understanding of Omar? Did you do a lot of thinking about who is this guy, or were you just going by what was on the page? What was your, I mean, just process to get inside the guy and who he was? Omar was, at first, was extremely foreign to me because he didn't read, you know, all that, that do tell, indeed, you know, you know, and he, no, he, no curse words. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Wait a minute, hold up. <laughs> and so that was the first thing that was foreign about him. Um, once I, you know, I, I, you know, said, okay, this is what it is. I made a, I, the only real decision I can remember making is not to have him sound like a dude from Brooklyn. That much I knew. I, I, I'd been in Baltimore a couple of weeks, whatever, and I was like, you know, whatever you, rehearsals, you walk the streets, you, you hear that sound. It's a very vibrant and colorful city that I, I, I love dearly. So I immediately knew that I had to capture that that essence of how to sound. It took me about first two seasons, but th season three, in my mind, I, 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 it felt in the pocket, but the first two, I come in and out on certain words, but everything else was pretty much on the paper. You know, how I found him 
was um, I just dove into that city. It's such a, it, I mean, me being you know you know, you know black, I, I you know you hear about these 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 utopia places called mad chocolate cities. You know, I've heard about these chocolate cities, but I actually never really been to one. You know, I was like, wait a minute, they really exist? It's like, holy shit. You know, and it was, you know, I never saw that type of, I fell in love with Baltimore. I just couldn't run that fast. I was, you know, the food, crab cakes. I, you know, my the days that I was off, you could set your clock for you to find me. I, you know, I hit the little little gym thing, whatever, do my thing, and then I would walk down the block to 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 Lexington Market, and I would sit in the back Fraley's, and I would have the double crab cake with the French fries and coleslaw, crab cakes, mustard, right? And I would just sit there and just listen to people talk and watch people walk and talk and interact with each other with their families, and you know. Don't get it twisted, you know, Lexington Market sits on the corner of Saratoga and Utah. My first time walking up on that corner in the afternoon, I thought that I was on a movie set. I, it was like, there's no way this many people can be in a full-on art at the same time. <laughs> if this three o'clock in the afternoon, the whole corner, you know, just all, you know, all brown people, I'd never seen that type of despair, you know, just a corner, like by a bus stop, I'll never forget. It'd be about 20 some odd people spread about within this intersection, broad daylight, naughty. It was naughty. I was like, that blew my mind. So, uh, you know, I started to dig, dive into that more, into that, what is that, you know? and um. You know, a lot of times I would walk those alleyways at night on my days off. I had some downtime. I was, you know, you know, between I, I, um, I don't know. I never. I just. I didn't know. I just wanted to just walk around in Baltimore. Just I didn't absorb. You know, I remember two o'clock in the morning. I'm driving. Some roof was off, and and I heard the first time I heard a yo. It was the one was talking. It was just it was quiet. I was driving. And um, I just heard that out the window, and it came, I feel like it came through the sunroof. So I asked my man, I said, yo, what's, up? what's that? What's that? Er, yo, er, er. And he laughed at me, because <laughs> he knew what I was trying to ask him. He said, hey, yo. But um, it was things like that that I would do, and um, that started to, you know, the more I, the more I embraced that city, like that's how I found, that's how Felicia and I met, by me just being in a local club, doing what local people do in the local club at 1.45 in the morning, <laughs> rushing for last call. <laughs> and that's how I met Felicia, by embracing the city and the, and the people. And um, That's amazing. Um, did you feel at the time that Omar and The Wire, that it was revolutionary in a way? Because we were seeing gay characters on TV, but we weren't seeing them the way The Wire portrayed them. It just felt different. I know. I remember when I was watching, just it didn't feel like what what we had been used to seeing on television. Did you think about that at all at the time, or did you think it was something different or revolutionary? Um, well, in regards to Omar's uh, uh, sexual orientation, I, I knew I I personally never seen nothing like that on the paper on uh, you know anywhere person on television before. So I you know, but I was determined to not play that card at the same time, like. So what, you know? Yeah, you know I mean, I was more interested in y'all believing that 
I could really know what, what to do with a gun. That was more, I was more worried about that than that stuff. You know what I mean? But um, uh, um, I, 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 again, I came into into the process of the why very ignorant. I didn't know and stand about the business. I definitely had no knowledge of the inner workings of David Simons, that that brain of his. You know, so you know. You know, you pull a kid from the hood. It's my first job. I got, you know, I get down there. You know, I'm told that, you know, I'm guaranteed seven episodes. But as you know, they didn't say anything. Or this is, you know, so I'm thinking I thought the worst, right? You know, this guy, he's living on the edge this much. They must be going to kill him. They kill his first two, his homeboy and his lover. So I'm thinking, oh, you know, he's got to be going soon. So you know, then the whole season goes by, and not only did they not write him out, but they made him, you know, destroy, wrote him in stronger. And I, I was like, so um. You know, I, I just, you know, this, I got a job. I love my coworkers. I love this city. I can't run that fast. So what do you do? You move down to Baltimore, right? That's what you do. I moved to Baltimore. I thought it was, you know, and, um, you know, wasted a lot of money. <laughs> because when I realized that David was going to take the storyline to the docks, which would then employ a Caucasian cast, and, you know, which would make my... Involvement on the set, you know, you know, and I just I didn't understand that. Now I do, you know. Season two is was for me. I know a lot of stuff what happens in season one, three, four, and five because I lived that on one level. It's been by some of my community. I don't know what the fuck happens on them docks until I watch <laughs> season two. I, I don't know that. I don't live in a port city. I don't have family. I don't have long short long shormans for family members. You know, so I learned the most from season two, but looking back, I was um, ignorant and I was mad, again, bitter. And I, I, I thought David was um, taking something that we had made, um, when I say we, I mean black people, my community, and was giving it to white people. And I, I, you know, how ignorant is that, right? You know, when you, when you look back at what David is doing now, what, 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 what David was thinking with the wire now was never a white or black thing. It was a it was a it was an American story. It was wrong with our cities, you know, white or black. And um, I didn't get that until season three. You know, something clicked with me in season three. And I was like, Mike, this is, you know, this is so not about you. This is not about your career or how much screen time you think you should be getting. You know, it was not about that. And then it, it made me so grateful to be just a small part. Like I tell people, man, don't watch that show just for one particular character. You miss, mm -hmm. you miss, you don't waste your time. You got other, go, go, <laughs> don't waste your time with this. You be, if you watching the wife for any one particular character, you waste your time. You miss the magic. And when I realized that, it, it, it's humbling. It's just grateful, you, you get grateful, you know, to be a part of something. So when, when a show like that does come along, how does, it, how does it change your career? How does it change you? And what opportunities kind of open up? Well, The, the Wire changed me on a number of reasons. Uh, I grew up, number one, um, you know, um, I, I, uh, I learned money management. You know, this, I had to begin to learn money management, you know, after The Wire. Uh, I had to uh, learn how to pace out a character, you know, um, before the why, I was just like, you know, you got to create something new. I get this one job, they kill it off. Next job, you know, to create something new. And then, you know, so when I came back for season two, I remember like, like stressing myself out, like, you know, trying to, I was like, wait a minute, just build on what you started last year and grow with that. 
the why of the first time I had that that revelation, if if you will, you know. Um, but most importantly, I I learned, you know, I, I my method, you know, if anybody's interested, I, you know, first I I use Meisner for repetition purposes. I for me it's like Meisner helps me find the truth. Right, and I, I just keep doing it, just keep saying it until it just keep going over it again and looking at it until you find what some people call the unwritten word, the truth. What did the writer really mean? And not put my, what I think it is, or just come to the truth of, and of as the, or the layers, as many farther as you can take it, as deep as you can get it. Once you've gotten there to the decision where you think the level of whatever it needs to be, or I think it is, then you gotta create it, right? You gotta make it real. I have to make it real. And the way I do that is by accessing, um, Emotion from sense memory, mostly that's where my music comes in, you know, uh, a great deal. But one of my early teachings, books I read about the method, it spoke about uh, two things not using things that are too close, trauma that is too close, that could send you down the wrong path. And then it spoke about being able to put things back, like to wash that off. And I was, I had no clue of how to do that on the wire. And then you mix that with the fact that um, the lines of reality had gotten blurred for me with, you know, um, the corny kid, you know, I wasn't the most popular or growing up for the reasons that maybe of Omar or what was considered what a a young man should be popular for my neighborhood. I was not popular for those names. I was indeed, you know, um, soft is what we call it. I was called basically, you know what I mean? So um, Omar, in my mind, the, the whatever insecurities or feeling uh, not accepted in my community, whatever feelings I, I harbored from whatever said instance growing up as a child, Omar freed that and made, and I believe that that was for me. So um, it was when the show and the character ended, it was, um, I felt like I had been chopped off by the knees, right? I had nothing to stand on because there was not the work that I needed to do on myself to keep my persona and my state of mind healthy. I wasn't doing that, you know. Um, and I often tell people, particularly people who say Omar is their favorite character, I say thank you. I say you, you know, but just never forget the, you know the state of mind that how dark you know you, you the state of mind one must be to to pull a character like that off. I, I didn't play with him. I didn't you know I I kind of like. I went in with him, I went into the fire with that character and didn't really have the tools to pull myself out. And uh, you know, and that's, you know, a lot of the self-destruction, destructive behavior came from, from that, but you know, we live and we learn, right? Yeah. So how did you approach, you know, a job like Boardwalk Empire? Because by then you had been through this and all that. Was that a, a, an easier, I don't want to say easier, but was it easier for you to not get so, I'll say sucked in, but just, you know, to play that character, but not, Maybe inhabit it quite the same as you did with Omar. With with um with Chalky, I had a different uh, job that didn't even allow me to think about Omar was was close to my childhood in a lot of different ways. I, I can't explain it. 
but um, Chalky, I had no clue who who that dude was because I'm born in 1920s. <laughs> <You> know, <never. laughs> I know I look like I was, but, but um, <laughs> um, yeah. So I got to do something really beautiful with Chalky, which was um, I got to hang out with some 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 dead people, my ancestors, man. Like you know, I, I uh, Chalky gave me a a, a window to 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 who my father was, the man that he was. My, I had my, my father, Booker T. Williams, my godfather, Junior Petway, um, my, my, um, my uncle, Jehu, my uncle, Tommy, and my uncle, Pa. And all of those, the three uncles are all my, all my father's brothers. And then my mother had one uncle, Uncle Pa, and I could tell you each personality that I remember, they're all deceased, right? And I would, you know, like for instance, um, when Chalky and Nucky, I think it was season one where, um, where the, the 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 Dago brothers I think had called uh, he said called him a nigger and spit on his shoes and Chalky choked him. <coughs> that was my mother's brother, Uncle Pa. You know, um, that that switch that when it just it would just you know he he had that you know sweet as apple pie, but he had that switch that just, it went like that, you know, and it's just like bare hand type shit. Wasn't really no big thing. He just grabbed you and just, you know, like it's, it would be that kind of thing. And you know, I remember the way he wore his clothes. That's my dad. My dad had a, had a love of um, swagger and style, his class, right? You know, but that walk and that snarl, that was my godfather. My godfather was a bit of a gangster, God bless him. You know what I mean? Um, he that was that was that was Godfather, you know, Junior. You know, when he was with his children, that was my my uncle Jay. You know, Uncle Jay, you know, sit him in his lap. He, I had all these different personalities, and and I would just bounce from all five of those men: Uncle Tommy, Uncle Jay, Hugh, Godfather Junior, my father Booker T, and my uncle Pa. Any any given scene, and um, it was um. I tell you, man, the, the the Honest Club, you can't tell me, man, like, you know, spirits ain't real. My dad was there because you know, that was his dream. You know, this, you know, he loved the chicks, you know what I mean? Pop Duke loved the chicks. I'm the last of 10, y'all. <laughs> Pop Duke loved the ladies, man. So, um, and that, that atmosphere, you know, the finger popping, the music, that was my dad, man, and like I would swear to God, you could look at some of them corners and sets because the, the production was so elaborate and so they paid so much attention to detail. That was the first time that I had seen that much attention to detail, especially for something that I had to do with. Like, wait, like, wait a minute, this is my fucking set? Are you kidding me? Like, man, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, that was um, that was a dream job. I call it sometimes. I, I blink my, I pat myself like, Mike, was that real? Did that, did that really happen? Was there really a show called Boardwalk Empire? Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> when, when you were pulling, pulling people from your past, your family, different family members, was that conscious or was it more instinctual where they just would kind of pop in there? No, they were, that was conscious. Okay. I, I had to, that was the homework I did to find them. And I, I got that, that technique from an um, um, uh, interview that Denzel Washington had did about um, ancestral energy in the characters. He praying out to the ancestors for the character. I heard him speak about that in an interview, and I said, wow, what a perfect time to practice that, that technique. 
And uh, I, I, I like it. I like it a lot. It's actually fun. It, you know, you gotta, again, it's a individual thing, you know, it's just my process, but uh, for me, it, um, it feels real, man. So I, yeah, I just, I rock with it. <laughs> well, these characters you play are just so, not just memorable, but they're, you know, they're real people, I think, to the audiences that watch. They get really sucked into the characters. Do you let them go when the job's over? Or do they all kind of still live inside of you? Do you say Omar's still in there, or do you kind of part ways with them when you move on? I think the only character sometimes I still feel a connection to is is Omar. You know, I've um, you know I, I've since learned how to uh, to um, keep a bit of myself, you know, for myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm studying this new process now of how to reach character. It's called um um. um dream assignments, if you will. It's connecting with your inner voice. You know, you, um, you know, it's not, it's, you know, it may sound hocus pocus, it's just my thing. I believe in, you know, when you write things down, the process of writing things on the paper, meditating on them, and then taking that into a slumber state, conscious, uh, consciously taking it into a slumber state, that, um, that, um, that has a, Effect on uh, on that that energy that thing that we can't see with the physical eye. You know, my my um, my friend and coach Goldie Sammy, who's in the audience, she's been helping me a lot with that, and um, we practice that for um, for we we use it for the Atlantic piece that you see um, Dream Assignments. We also use it for um, uh, for this up and coming Star Wars. Uh, I'm really proud of that. I had to uh, the character that I play is not 100% human. I'll leave it at that. So, uh, again, you don't want me to sound like a dude from Brooklyn, right? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, come on, right? Well, um, so, um, yeah, it was really interesting to use these new techniques and new new ideas of how to reach the truth. And um, I'm just I'm just really soaking it up right now. How, how do you juggle between projects that are really grounded in reality, like a Boardwalk Empire or The Wire, and then with things that are a little more like sci-fi and fantasy, whether it's RoboCop, or Star Wars type project is? Do you approach it differently, or is it all the same approach? Yes, sir. The approach is the same for me. Number one, first and foremost, the truth. I'm always after the truth, and the truth is always real. So even in a you know the comedic state of of whatever, I am constantly the character. What is the truth? What's really going on? And I approach that seriously, um, even in a comedic uh, uh, situation. And my main tool, my main ingredient that you will always see me with, no matter what it is, is music. I approach, I arrive at all my uh, characters driving some sort of musical vehicle, <laughs> like little music songs, and it doesn't have to pertain to a particular era or whatever. If that song, invokes the emotion in me that I need to bring the truth to that particular scene, a particular character. That's what I do in a, you know, for any given, um, you know, I even name the playlist when I know I got a big day, um, most likely something that, that calls on a, more of an emotional situation. I have, um, I name my playlists, you know, and I, and I, I go at it and uh, I stay that in the music. You'll see me on set, you know, I, I, um, I'm, you know, I'm that guy, I'm, you know, I don't really, uh, depending on the particular scene, how heavy it may be, or how intense or involved, I, you know, 
there's not much contact with Mike. I stay there wherever there is and um, not much contact with Mike and uh, the music. It, it, it drowns all the, all the noise out for me. So I'm just constantly in a state of music and the, the, the character is just... It's great. For, for all this heavy stuff that you've done in your career, heavy meaning just the dramatic roles, then you do an arc on Community which is a straight on sitcom, very funny, but talk about that. Was that a big relief for you that it was actually something a little funnier? It wasn't quite as heavy as some of the stuff you'd been doing? Um, the Collective was my, my first. Believe it or not, that shit is not as easy as it looks. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, I, I have a great deal of respect for improv actors, comedic actors, you know, that timing, you know, that, that wit. That, that, that it has to, and you know, I give it about, you got about maybe five, seven seconds of me improving, and I'm gonna say something very inappropriate, <laughs> offensive. It's a muscle to, to do that, right? And the first time I saw that was on the community. I was like, like, again, like, wow. Like, you know, just see how, you know, they all bounce and it's wit and a lot of that stuff, all that stuff is now on the paper. It's now on the, it's now on the page. You know, um, I got to witness that again with um, uh, on uh, the Swalls Before Dying with Kristen Wiig and 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 uh, and, and Kate McKen McKinnon and and God Maya Rudolph. You know, it was um, them chicks, man. This is Kate. Uh, 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 Chris. Uh, 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 help me out. C Chris. Kristen. Kristen, what's the last name? Kristen Wig. Kristen Wig should come with a warning sticker. <laughs> <laughs> we in this scene, bro. And I knew it was on the page, right? I said, okay, Mike, we gotta we got be professional. We don't laugh in the fucking scene, right? So I'm like, we going on. So now it's me and her, right? And then the two cops. And she is, she's playing a drug addict. So she baked this strawberry banana cake, right, that didn't have no strawberry and no chocolate in it, <laughs> no banana, and she put like pills, opiate pills, on top of the cake, right, and the this frosting was supposed to have been strawberry, right, so, so we keep this, so we, we all eating the cake, and the cops like, but if you say you ain't got this thing there, so they finally get to, well, you said there's no strawberries in the cake, well, how is the cake red, look like strawberries? And she said it was just so, it's like, again, it's, I'm, it's her, it's that thing that they do. I don't know how they do it, y'all, but she says, oh, oh, I cut my finger. And that meant the blood <laughs> dripped into the sea, right? <laughs> and she, oh, 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 I cut my finger. <laughs> I'm like, nah, that ain't fair, yo. That ain't on the page, right? <laughs> that ain't on the page, right? And I'm like, that's really fucked up. <laughs> and they going on, and I'm sitting there, I'm trying to hold it after it. And I, um, I almost, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing went through the, the stomach line and ruptured, went through the damn rib. I'm sitting there like, this shit hurts. <laughs> trying not to laugh. But uh, so that was um they uh that ain't as easy as it looks that 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 uh that timing so I I have um every time I get around them it grows you know from Ghostbusters you know even you know that stuff that little bander in in the in the, in the mayor's office 
you know, um, I had I had raised my hand. I had put an idea in to uh, to uh, to uh, 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 Melissa because you know we you know so you got asshole that's big homie big homie right there yo Melissa check it out right <laughs> I got this idea and she was like and then first person was like motherfucker anybody ask you they all looked at me <laughs> right but then they thought about it and then she said all right let me, let me see what, let me see what the kids got what they got. Right, and they end up going with it. They let me, they let me rock with it, you know. But um, it's a muscle, and it's a, it's a, it's very intimidating if you don't really come from that. I, I don't come from that world, so I have a great deal of respect for the comedic actor and the improv, and I would, I would love to do it again. You know what? I'm gonna put it out there. Me and Jamie Foxx are gonna do a movie together. <laughs> Make it happen. Make it put happen. it out there, Jamie. It's out there now. It's gotta happen. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. No, don't apologize. This is great. Um, a show like Captain Leonard, which is on Sundance, if you guys haven't seen it, um, wonderful show. It's, it's, I guess I would call it almost a dramedy because there's comedic stuff that happens, but then there's also some really dark, just human stuff going on. Um, the relationship with the father, all that that you see play out. Talk about working with James Purifoy because it is very much a two-hander at that show. Mm-hmm. How did that feel different doing a project like this where it really is? I mean, the two of you are driving pretty much everything going on in that show. Yeah, you know, um, I, I know it seems like I have a, this long, awesome career. Actually, I do, you know, but um, it's very short. And um, Happen Leonard and The Spalls Before Dying were actually the first time that the credits read starring Michael K. Williams. So um, I, I'm very, um, it's a blessing, you know. I, I'm, I'm leading a show, you know, and, and it's a... I get to go to work with someone who I love and respect. Uh, James Pierrevoy and I happen to be um, real friends in real life. Um, I've known him since 2008. We were in, um, in South Africa together on The Philanthropist that was on for all of like five minutes. Um, but um, yeah, man, you, 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 know, uh, the, you know, I'm learning a lot. Happen Leonard and the spoils, you know, people, well, I know I didn't really give it much thought, but you know, in my quest to what you know, I want to be a star. I want to be a leading actor. I'm worth it. I can do it. I can do the work, right? And all of that belly aching, I forgot one small situation that though that 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 shit that title comes with a schedule, right? A schedule, schedule. <laughs> Yo, bro, you, it's like, bro, let me tell you something. No wonder leading people are crazy. You gotta be, you gotta be, bro. This shit, woman, you gotta be focused. It's like, you gotta be driven. At least I find it's like an athlete. You know, you, you're talking, you know, like I watched like Amelia and, 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 and um, what's, I forgot, I'm blanking on his name right now. How those, these, the, my, my coworkers out there, Woody, out there on the set of Star Wars, they've been there. <laughs> I met them there and I left them there. We're talking like 13, 14, 15 hours. You know, because London, the rules are different, so they go a little longer. We're talking French, French, French hours for lunch, you know, on, you know, like they call they talk about the French hours, your half hour, and say, keep it moving. A lot, that's, 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 you have to have a, a stamina for that. It'll break you down mentally and, and physically. And um, I learned how to pace myself, the stamina physically, uh, take care of the instrument. You know, on a, I learned that on another level, being on, on Happen Letter and the Spoils. You know, and um, the most important thing I've learned is um, 
how valuable my, my energy is, like what I bring to the set. You know, it ain't just about, you know, my acting, my, my ability to, to, to breathe life into a character. That, that's important too, but it's all, it's all encumbrancing. Like when your name is on the top of the call sheet, I find that that, that comes with a responsibility. And, you know, I'm learning how to be a leading man. What that really means to me is being a human being, treating everybody with, with kindness and, and, and respect and, you know, being on time, not, you know, not, you know, because, you know, I've been there where there's been situations where, you know, the other actor, I had to do lines with the stand in, you know, and things of that nature. And I just, and I remember how I made me feel, right? So I'm an opportunity to not make someone else feel that way. So I don't, right? So I'm having those experiences and then having James there, you know, like we have a, I got a little say so now with the point I'm in this, you know, been in this game for 20 years. I get, I get to, um, I get to hire a few friends, you know? I get to hire a few friends, people who I've seen grind for years, like Maurice Marable, who directed the first segment of season two. This is a man I've seen, I know when he had his first child. Um, I've watched him you know, grind and do the work in and, and just work as a director and not be given his opportunity. I can say, you know, you know I gave him a shot as, a, and, and he's coming back again this year. You know, so Happen Leonard is affording me those opportunities and you, know, you can't put a price on that. Um, talk about your experience with, yeah, it's great. Um, talk, talk about the night of, which was, you know, kind of uh, eight, eight episodes? Was that yeah, eight. eight. So it, and it's kind of, you know, it is what it is. It's not something that I don't think will, you know, come back. It's just like, it does, I don't think so. I definitely don't think it'll be, yeah, Steve Zellian and Richard Price, you know, again, class A guys, you know, um, there's no amount of money you can throw at them that would be the primary purpose why they would bring this back. It would have to be for the right reasons, and that's just where we're at with that. Um, the night of uh, took me down a, a, another, you know, dark road. Um, again, I, um, I I used a situation I think was, was kind of close to me. Uh, I based Freddie on my nephew, who's been incarcerated, Dominic Dupont, who's been incarcerated for 20 years. He just made 20 years incarcerated um, for a very bad situation that he was defending his twin brother for. But um, a life was lost in the process, right? So um, you know, he's making no excuses for it. You know, he, he is Freddie. I mean, this bright light who made a bad mistake, a lot of potential, um, and is very powerful behind the wall, has a lot, of, a lot of respect behind the walls. They just use it for different reasons. My nephew is doing the right thing mentoring young men coming behind him in, those, in, in the prison where he's at, right? You know, Freddie had a more of a manipulative uh, uh, agenda, you know, and he was, he was, he was sick. He had, he had a disease, you know, that, 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 that heroin series that, you know, you know what I mean? So um, those two worlds, you know, me, my past with, you know, with that darkness of addiction and then you know, being having getting this glimpse into what my nephew must be having have endured for twenty years of his life, because he went in as a young man, kid. Uh, you know, it was just like, um, yeah, it was just kind of like again, you know, uh, you know, Stephen, his attention to detail can really trip you up if you're not careful. Um, we're talking 150 days in in uh, this remote area in Yonkers in a very cold winter 
on this on the base camp looked like the yard, like it was on this rock. And it was like, hey, you know, room full of dudes and everybody's dressed in dark colors and, you know, and I'm doing my thing. I, um, that was a painful job. Like I, you know, very painful job. I needed to go sit down after that job, but instead I went and shot a few episodes of Black Market to cheer up. <laughs> exactly. Not like a little Black Market to cheer up, right? <laughs> <laughs> But obviously those roles come along and you can't say no, even if you do need a mental break or a physical break, you know, like Black Market or When We Rise or any of these other projects, like you can't take a break. I'm it's guessing. It's about me, yeah. right? I'm blessed. I'm fortunate. I get to tell stories. I get to, um, I get to give people a voice through the arts. People, like, you know, what I do, I consider me in the service work. I am um, a service. You know, it means a lot to me when a particular community or, or uh, you know, comes and, you know, or, you know, I go deep and I get to, you know, bring the truth out. You know, I'm a truth seeker in a fictitious, fictitious, fictitious situation. Um, and it means something to me when when people get touched by that in any in any uh, direction, you know, um, so that, that puts me in the service business, you know. Yeah. So when When We Rise comes along, which you were amazing and I was a big fan, um, and you have Ken Jones, who's you know could be standing right over there as you're doing scenes playing him. Was there a luxury in that, or was there intimidation? Because you know the guy you're playing is literally just off camera. Because I know he was there a lot of the time. Yeah, you know um, I would request him every chance I get. You know, but then one small little detail, he had a life of his own. Fuck, right? <laughs> Dude, we're making a movie about your life. Fuck your job, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, I couldn't, I couldn't, like, I was like a, like gum on his shoe, right? I couldn't, he couldn't get rid of me. He just invited me to come be with him, you know, uh, for pride, him and Jonathan, who played young Ken, right? We was gonna, we were trying to see if we can get all three of us to come and celebrate pride, uh, with him in San Francisco, but I can't, um, that's what I got out of, out of that. Like, I, this man is, um, you know, first, you know, I was a little intimidated. Uh, you know, I didn't know who and what kind of person he would be, you know. Um, and then once I got around him and, uh, I, you know, we had so much in common. Uh, you know, just his, his, just, he's a very, he's a kind of guarded, right? And um, not very emotional. That's, that we don't have in common because I'm, I'm like, right, cry baby. But uh, uh, he, he, the days that he'd be on set, there were times you know, this man has been through hell and to be on the set to watch, you know, me reenact his life, I can only imagine what that must have been like. But there were a few times he would come from behind the, um, the, the monitor and, you know, he, he would like, he, he would just, he would have this, 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 this little glass look in his eyes, right? Uh, I said, he's a special dude, that guy, man. Oh, I'm sorry. He's just been through a lot. He's been through so much. I'm sorry, but he just, he would just give it a thumb. He'd just be like, you know, <laughs> and he would just, you know, that thing, you know, he just, <laughs> military, man. He ain't giving you too much, right? But um, I, I, I really, uh, that job changed me forever. Uh, getting to play him and to have him there. 
you know, um, he's a he's a special human being. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a better man for knowing him. I was on I was on set. I don't think of the day when you were there because they were shooting the younger cast then. But Ken was there, and mm-hmm. there was something about talking to him and having him look you in the eye. <laughs> you were talking it, about because I felt like I was like, oh my god, he's looking right into my soul. And I'm just asking a question for a story. But did, was that accurate? Because I felt like he just was just there with you, and it was he's sharp. Yeah, he's it was, sharp. It was a good feeling. Yeah, like he like he, you know, he texts me for the invite. He's not a big. He's not a big caller, right? This is a. 60 plus, you know what I mean? Not a bill, you know, hey, you know, hey, baby, bro, pride, come down here, da, da, da. I said, oh man, I gave him the big, the long speech about why I can't make it. You know what he hit me back with? Peace. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. You know? like, That's Ken Jones. You know what I love it. Um, we're gonna get to audience questions in just a second. Um, I wanted to ask you though, um, just during my research for this, you know, you use your platform to help other people. I know you've worked with ACLU. Um, talk about your charity a little bit, because I know you have a charity that you you are behind. Um, yeah. Uh, well, the, the charity that I'm behind right now would be the Urban Arts Partners. Um, I believe they was trying to bring a chapter to LA with the 24-hour play. Um, Rosie Perez, uh, um, she brought me in a few years ago and um, I'm on the creative board of directors with that. Um, Right now, where I'm at, I don't even know if I would call it charity or whatever, I'm just just all about solutions right now. I'm sick and tired of crying. I am sick and tired of complaining. I am sick and tired of pointing fingers. And it just doesn't—it just doesn't work for me, right? So I got this opportunity with this platform, and I got some things that bother me. So I'm like, shit, <laughs> you know. So um, you know, the short version of that is um, I got this bright idea. You know, um, a friend of mine, uh, Jimmy Roseman, who's incarcerated right now, for fighting for his life. He asked me to do a favor for him and take a few meetings and speak on his behalf. And a few months later, I found myself in the White House talking to um, then President Obama and uh, in a room of 20 people somewhat. And um, he was looking, like they sat me directly across the table from him and he's asking me my opinion on uh, criminal justice reform. And uh, you know, I remember freaking out, like, you know, you know, like, what? You know what I mean? You know, and, um, you know, Michael Skolnick, another good friend of mine, he says, um, you know, it is his discovery that people who are closest to the problem are usually the ones closest to the solution. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm your guy. Because I'm around, I, be, I know what the problem, I'm around the problem. I be like, I'm still in the, you know, I'm still in the hood a little bit, right? So I know, and, and so um, it gave me a voice and uh, I came out, from that with like, Mike, what do you do with this? Like, you know, I looked at my life and then it hit me. I said, you've been, you've been plagued by the judicial system all your life from visiting, from friends being in, you know, just, it's just whatever. You just, and I took five names, my nephew, one of them, my cousin, who did 24 years in prison, just came home. Um, you know, Jimmy right now, um, another friend of mine, Daryl Wiles, who, who um, did like 13, 15 years, um, a nonviolent uh, drug charge. Um, and I took these stories and, and, and uh, Matt Hor- Horowitz, who was one of the top producers over at HBO, he found this line and 
just it, it pulled together this common thread of all these people that's in my life committed these these crimes were um, all adolescents. Well, three three out of the five were adolescents, and um, we decided to dig into that, and then we found out how um, you know how messed up it is to put an adolescent mind in an adult situation, even though they do an adult thing. You know, by the time that child has done something that to that magnitude, there's been so much trauma in the kid's life, we, don't, we need to address that as well too. So, you know, nothing good comes from throwing a malleable mind, you know, away like that in a maximum security prison, it just doesn't work. And so we started getting, so instead of just telling these stories, we started to, wait a minute, so there's some science to this, right? Like science, facts of what happens when you lock a young mind up. We create little monsters, that doesn't work. We're putting these kids in, not saying they should get away with what they're doing, but we still have to allow for the fact that the mind can still change because these are young minds. And we, if we could deal with the trauma that beforehand, maybe we, they, they may have a fighting chance. We can't kill someone for a crime they did when they were a child. Just not fair, but that, that was going on. <laughs> so, when we, in doing that, this I got introduced to all this information. It's crazy. It's amazing what you find when you just fucking go look for it, right? I started finding all these grassroots programs all throughout the country, from Richmond, California, to Toledo, Ohio, to Newark, New Jersey. Like people just saying, "Enough is enough." You know, no one has to end to, has the, 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 the president's heir. No one has a celebrity they can call to be the face of some said thing situation. It's just, no one is rich. It's just taking the resources that is already there in the community, finding out how we could, you know, redirect and create some buffers. Because there's all this, let's create some fucking roadblocks between sending the kids to the damn prison. It's just, it's just variation. So it's just, and we call them solutions. So this piece that we are documenting, it's working title, Diamond in the Rough. Um, we, um, we, we, uh, we hope to shine a light on all the good that's going on because we all know that shit don't sell papers, right? So I'm gonna shine some light on some grassroots situations that I found in my journey to doing this documentary that you know, maybe you might wanna get with that situation. Maybe you might be like, yo, honey, Honey, we could do that. That ain't that. Don't let them cost much to do. I'm hoping to inspire some of that. And the crown jewel of, of this piece is um, the borough prisons in, in the state of New York gave us permission to take HBO cameras behind the prison walls and interview my nephew. You know, because um, I didn't get to tell you is the, the the man he's become in there is. And I wish I had an ounce of that. You know, he's he's such a light. He's such a, a, a bright light, and he, he grew up in there, and he did the right thing with his time in there, you know. And his, you know, he says things like, you know, Unc, you know, I realized that the minute the cuffs went on me, that began. That's the day I started my reentry. I started thinking about how do I reenter, and not when I reenter, but how do I want to reenter? How strong do I want to come back? And it's 18 year old, he started, th you know, and you know, and, and owning up to his. It's just. You know, so um, yeah, we got to take the cameras in there, man, on June 5th. And that was the actual date to the day he made 20 years being incarcerated. And we didn't plan that. He had started this organization there called Exodus. 
And uh, it's, um, it's a program that, you know, because when you do time, it's all about the programs. You got to give it the program. That's how you pass your time. That's how you stay positive. And, um, you know, he created a program in there, Exodus, and, and he's mentoring young men and just men of all ages. I walked in a room in the prison, a maximum security prison or in a room of like 50, 60 inmates, and they all hanging off every word coming out of my nephew's mouth. I was like, yo, are you kidding me? You know, so um, we call him his story the crown jewel because, you know, everybody's not, is, you know, everybody's behind those walls are not like, it's, you know, it's a lot of good people want to do good. People are doing the right thing. People are atoning for their mistakes and, you know, deserve a second chance, right? Don't we all? I know I, I, I mean, you know, if you know my story, so um, I'm, I'm all about second, third, fourth, fifth. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know what I mean? So, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing right now with it. That's where I'm at with it right now. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, let me get some audience questions before we have to wrap up. Um, Victor would like to know, what, what would you have done different if you weren't an actor? Or I'll say a performer as well. What, what would, did you have a plan B? Um, the only career I ever thought about was uh, uh, being a pediatrician. I thought about that once, and, and uh, one of my friend's mother was a, a, a nurse, and she took me to a, a, crack, a crack baby ward, and I was like, okay, um, next. <laughs> Couldn't handle it. Um, uh, um, when I should have been dreaming about what I could do, you know, you know young minds should be thinking about that. I was, um, you know, drugs had plagued that time, you know, drug addiction that plagued that time kind of took over situations. So, you know, when the average young adult should have been thinking about what they want to be in life, I would think about how do I get this motherfucking monkey off my back? You know what I'm saying? And so, I, you know, um, I don't know, I, you know, you know, these scars, you know, I was just, you know, this thing stops at my juggler. You know, I've, I've done, a, I've just, the, uh, when I was out there as an, an active addict, it just, you know, I don't know if I would, if I would, you know, be here if I didn't have the arts. It, the arts really saved my life, and still to this day, it gives me something to focus on. It keeps me positive, you know. Um, I still have an inclination to do something stupid, and I think about, you know, all that I have to do you know, all that I'm responsible for in my life and, you know, people that depend on me to be on time and to be present, that, you know, all these, you know, room full of people I get to come and run off at the mouth and I don't take this for granted. This is, this all helps to keep me, my mind focused. I don't take this for granted. So, um, what's the life I'm living today? Okay, okay. Um, nobody, they did not leave their name, but um, how did you get involved with Viceland? Oh, wow. Um, uh, 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 Spike Jones. Um, gave me, I got a call from Spike Jones. He said he wanted to talk to me. And I was like, fuck, tell Spike Jones no, right? <laughs> I went down to Santa Monica and he, um, he mentioned Black Market. And I was like, uh, okay, this sounds great, but w what do you want with me? Like, what, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what you want me to you know, you're Spike Jones. This is Vice, you know, Vice Land, Vice. You know, you know, it's just for intelligent people, so, you know, what do you want with me? And um, he, he, he's, I, again, he, he, just like what Michael Skolnick did, 
Spike said, you know, well, black market is basically when the system fails you, you create your own system. And that immediately made me, like I understood where he was coming from. I immediately saw my mother, you know, cause I'm first generation Bahamian. So like, you know, who got their green card was, that was like, you know, past the, past the business. Who got, well, you got, got the green card, you know? <laughs> and that's what you did, you, had, you know, so, and you did whatever you had to do to get that green card, you know? Like things, you know, some of my family members got with back in the day, you know, the marriage was a big thing, you know, pay for marriage and, you know, and, you know, you know, all that, whatever you had to do, man, get the green card. And so I remember that hustle. I you know, remember my mother telling stories about how she had to like, you know, duck and run her early days in Brooklyn because immigration was after her, you know. And so it made me have empathy. It wasn't just, you know, sex, drugs and, you know, child pornography and, it, you know, that stuff that, you know, would have like, you know, just would have scarred me. It wasn't about that, it was about people just trying to make it, trying to not to fall between the cracks. And unfortunately, you know, doing things that was deemed as illegal or dysfunctional, but it wasn't, they weren't doing it for those reasons. You know, people, everyone that I met on the, on the journey through black market had the same thing in common. If you gave them an opportunity to have a better way of life, they would take it in a minute. Um, Kevin Anderson would like to know, which character are you the most like that you play? You talked about how you put a lot of yourself and your, fam your family, I guess, into your roles, but which one do you think is closer to you? Yo, fuck you, goalie, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fucked up, right? <laughs> I know what you said. I don't know if I want to answer that question. <laughs> no, nah, um, I, um, I've been told that I have a lot in common with Leonard, believe it or not. Leonard, Leonard Pine from yeah. Happen Leonard. Yeah, um, yeah the, apparently um, I have an alter ego that my friends call him um, Grandpa Jenkins. <laughs> that, um, yeah, cause this is like me being brutally honest right now, y'all. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've been told that um, I remind people a lot of um, uh, Leonard, Leonard reminds a lot. My friend, my close friend, they, when they see me, you know, we all got an ugly side, y'all. This is, this, this is, you know, this ain't all this, you know. Yeah. Mike got an ugly side, you know, and um, I could be grumpy at times, I guess, you know. But um, I say Leonard. Leonard is, um, I get, I've been hearing that a lot. Okay. <laughs> Does that make it easier or more difficult to play? Um, season one was difficult. Season one was difficult because I didn't realize um, how, <laughs> how much of that was actually true. Um, and then I think um, me crossing the line, you know, because I, I kind of, um, I recommended that James Prayerfoy, if we could get him, <laughs> should, be, should, be get, should get the call. And uh, he and I and his wife, we, we you know, sit down over a few bottles of wine. Well, now his wife, but back then his girlfriend, we, sit down over bottles of wine in South Africa and just like, you know, the conversation went all over the place. You know, you know, I, you know, I've, you know, James and I have been together for two inaugurations, President Obama and, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I be trying to stay away from that, y'all. But the moral of the story is, James and I have been through a lot together. You know, um, a lot. We've, you know, you know, a couple of bottles of wine. It gets, it gets ugly. We've had a few arguments. You know, pompous Brit. You know, <laughs> the roundaway dude from Brooklyn. There's bound to be some cultural clashes in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but that's what friends friends we work it out. We argue, we fight, we you know, we kiss and we make up. And we had that dichotomy, if that's the right word, in our personal friendship. And I thought it would be a cakewalk to bring that to the job. And in season one, it actually had it had a like a negative. You know, we we um we had to re it, we had to because you got to land right in this character. And it's, it's it was a lot, and it, you know um. I realized, you know, it had been a few years since he and I worked together. We had different processes, you know, and just the fact that he and I were, we, we're hangout buddies, we're good friends and brothers, you know, we give our shirt to each other, doesn't mean we get together, we work, we get along on the work. You know, was, when you come to, you know, it, it was a, it was a, we had to redefine our friendship and re, refine each other. You know, I, you know, um, I know for me, I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of growing up and a lot, you know, a little selfish in season one, a little like, you know, just, you know, Grandpa Jenkins, right? And uh, he called me out. He called me out in season one, you know, and it, it made me a better man, you know, and uh, we just have a, we got a, you know, season two, yes, yes, last season was was really a step in the right direction. I'm really, I'm really this season, I'm just, I'm kind of like excited. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, because season three is happening. Have you already shot? Or no, no, shooting? no. We, we go into production in okay. September. September in Atlanta. Okay. Looking forward to it. That'll be great. Um, Sean Head would like to know, with everything you know now, what would you tell your younger self if you could? <laughs> i heard this question before. Um, I would tell younger Michael, to know your self-worth. Don't play your worth cheap. Don't play yourself cheap. Know your self-worth. Be humble, stay humble, but know your self-worth. That's good words. Um, you might have talked about this a little bit. Do you still go through classes or coaching or with your acting? I think you touched on it a little bit, but you still work on just learning more, because some actors, I know they get to a point, they don't think they need to do it. No, I'm guessing you're not no, that way. I, I'm, this is still, you know, um, it, again, it may seem like I've been around for a while, but in my mind, it's like I just got here. And, I'm, you know, um, and, you know, the type of work, the type of uh, way that I reach my truth and characters depends on my personal growth so much. They're hand in hand, almost. You know, I, it's like a gift and a curse. If you will, I get to I get to get I get to get paid to grow up. You know my work, um, my work, my work uh, benefits when I am my best self on a personal level, right? So it's a win-win for me. So um, I'm constantly, well, I know this is ever this is, you know I guess again without sounding like freaking cliche here, like you know evolving. And I'm growing up. I'm a late bloomer. You know I got to the party late in life about being responsible and being, a, you know, you know, somewhat of a, a, a present parent, <laughs> you know, I'm a son, a friend, you know, um, Mike's been selfish for a lot of years, you know, um, just chasing what mattered to me. And so I'm learning how to, uh, you know, 
be a little more responsible with myself and with the people that are in my life that love me, you know. That that translates into my work and it makes everything better. Well, thank you for sharing everything today, your whole journey. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to everybody here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.